Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and on today's episode, I sit down for a conversation with Jason Wang. Jason shares openly about growing up in poverty in a neighborhood where he was exposed to drugs and violence from a very young age. He shares about being subjected to abuse as a child and about the impact that all of these things had on his life and trajectory. It is so easy to see how the result of it all was an aggravated robbery charge that left 15-year-old Jason with a 12-year prison sentence. What is so remarkable about Jason and his story is his resilience and determination throughout his life. Ultimately, this has led him to become entrepreneur-in-residence for Schmidt Futures. He has created and leads Free World, an organization with the mission of bringing high-wage careers to millions of returning citizens across America so they can live fulfilling, positive lives, prison-free. Before we dive in, we wanted to let you know that this is the final episode of season one of The Field. Thank you for being with us throughout this journey. It has meant the world that you've given us the gift of your time and attention as we address the important issues around decarceration and reentry. A huge thank you to all of our guests who shared their stories so openly and to the generosity of our season one sponsor, Castles, Brock, and Blackwell. The success of season one means we will be back for season two. We look forward to bringing you more inspiring stories and feel free to follow us on Instagram at the.field.podcast or sign up for our mailing list on thefieldpodcast.com for updates. Now for our conversation with the incredibly inspiring Jason Wang. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. The things I love most about Castles are the firm's commitment to promoting a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive firm, and their ongoing support of the communities in which they operate. To find out more about Castles, check out castles.com or on Twitter at Castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Thank you, Jason, so much for joining us here in the field. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Zoe. I'd love to just start by hearing a little bit about, you know, growing up and about your background. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I I grew up in poverty. My parents were immigrants that came over to this country really seeking the American dream. Um, But they had no education. They didn't know anybody here. And so they end up working menial menial jobs, uh, working at restaurants, just trying to, to scrape by. The neighborhoods that I grew up in were filled with drugs, violence. Matter of fact, we had one person that broke into our home at one point and tried to commit suicide out of our living room window. Um, So this is a really tough place to grow up. My father was always an entrepreneur, and he knew that he didn't want to work in a restaurant for the rest of his life. Um, So he ended up borrowing money from a Chinese gang to start a trucking company. And after that company failed and he couldn't pay back the money, uh, the gang actually went to him and said, hey, if you don't pay us back the money, we're going to kill your entire family. And they had pictures of all of us. So we ended up having to flee New Jersey. Uh, so we went from New Jersey to New York to Georgia and finally landed in Iowa of all places. Wow. And by this point, you know, my father had saved up enough money. He ended up starting a Chinese restaurant, even though he didn't want to be in the restaurant business for the rest of his life. Um, so he started a Chinese restaurant in Carroll, Iowa. And uh, I was one of the few people of color in a small city of maybe about five to five to 10,000 people. I think I'm being a little bit uh, optimistic there. 
<laughs> but very it was a very small. small town. Yeah, so I had to deal with with quite a bit of racism growing up. Kids picking on me just for for looking a little bit different. So I always just felt really alone. How old were you when you moved to Iowa? Uh, I was about six years old. And when I moved to Iowa, you know, my daily schedule was wake up, go to school. As soon as I came back from school, I would work in the restaurant as a six-year-old. And that would be anything from bussing tables to cooking in the back, chopping up like, you know, chicken and vegetables and all that stuff, working as a cashier. Um, And then during the downtimes, my mom, who was really, really big into education, would take our huge Chinese menus. And on the back side of it, she would write down a bunch of math problems. And so the stereotype of Asians always being good at math, well, partially it's true because my my mom always drilled that into me. She cared about education, whereas my dad really cared about hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, he dropped out of school when he was in sixth grade and ended up going to Hong Kong, um, working in factories just to be able to take care of the family. And so he was very low educated and his pathway in life, he believed, was all about hard work. And so I had that really weird dynamic in the family where my father didn't care about education, but my mom did. And so it was kind of a struggle to figure out, well, what is my pathway in life and what is important to me as a kid? Mm -hmm. I actually, I almost kind of want to go back for a second because you kind of shared about the, you know, growing up in poverty and with drugs and violence happening around you. And then this move and being subjected to racism in the small town that you were living in. Like what was the impact of all of that on six-year-old Jason? Well, I felt really alone. Um, You know, I I didn't have many friends. I ended up running away from home quite a bit. Uh, My father was really, really abusive. I mean, you know, the the restaurant wasn't really doing that well. And so we were struggling to pay our bills and the stress was really getting to him. So as a kid growing up, he used to always say, hey, you know, you're good for nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. When he would get really angry, Uh, He would strip me down naked, throw me onto the floor and stomp on me. Uh, In Iowa, we would have these huge blizzards and he'd just throw me naked out into the freezing cold. Um, Several times he got so mad that he took a butcher knife and even chased me around the kitchen trying to kill me. He tried to rub me over with his car at some point. So by the age of 10, I had already tried to um, commit suicide. And one of the things that I thought about, I remember at one point, I was on the roof of the restaurant, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm like a seven, eight-year-old kid at this point, but I knew that my dad always worried about money, and I was so angry because he would constantly abuse me that I hung myself over the restaurant roof thinking about killing myself in front of the restaurant because that was my way of getting back at him. If I killed business, if I took away uh, his ability to earn money, that was the only power that I had as a child. There were other moments where there was a train track that was behind the restaurant and I laid down on the the train tracks waiting for the train to come just because I I didn't know what else to do. Yeah. And how did that shape sort of the next chapter of your life? Yeah. So at at the age of 10, my dad um, goes up to my mom and he says, hey, I've got a wife and three kids in China. We didn't know that at the age of 18, he was in an arranged marriage and he had fled his family. But for like the past 12 years, he was trying to sponsor them to come to America. And he finally did. Uh, so they came to live with us in our home. And of course, my mom absolutely flipped out. So when my dad dropped the news, she drove out into the middle of the woods and she was really, really contemplating taking her own life. And the only reason why she stopped 
was because she thought, I don't want Jason to grow up without a mother. So she came home and she gritted her teeth and worked her way through it. And so finally she just couldn't take it anymore. So she decided to get divorced and she moved me and my grandma with her down to Dallas, Texas. Now at this point, I'm about 12, 13 years old and I've already grown up feeling that my back's against the wall, that I have to do whatever I have to do to survive and that I'm alone. Mm -hmm. So I end up, you know, meeting this group of friends that, you know, were getting into gang related activity. And I joined them because they were the family that I didn't have at home. They loved me. They respected me. Uh, The gang leader was kind of a father figure to me and he was teaching me everything that he knew. And so we started robbing houses and uh, that ended up with me being arrested at the age of 15 and being sentenced to a maximum security juvenile prison on a 12 year sentence. And I'll never forget the day that I was arrested. When my mom moved to Texas, when my mom moved us to Texas, you know, she's got no education. So she ended up working in a minimum wage job, you know, 14 hour night shift. So she was usually pretty tired. And the way that I got arrested was I pulled my car into the garage and then two cop cars came up from behind me with guns drawn and they arrested me on the spot. We're making so much commotion in the garage that my mom comes out and she goes, what's going on? And the cop says, hey, your son has been implicated in a robbery. Uh, We're taking him down for questioning. And up until that moment, I hated my mom because during all those years of abuse from my father, my mom never really stepped in um, to stop what was happening. And so I hated her because I thought that she she didn't care about me. Mm. It was the exact opposite. Uh, She was afraid of my father as well. And she leapt to my defense, no questions asked. She told the cops, there's no way my son could have done that. You must have the wrong kid. So they haul me over to uh, the, the holding room. And in the distance, I hear somebody else being interrogated by the cops. And I hear chairs being thrown. And I'm frightened. And I've got these two really big officers. And they're asking me all these questions and making me write a statement. And I'm terrified, so I just do whatever it is that they ask. So I end up going into the juvenile detention facility where I spend the next two and a half months waiting my court hearing. I mean, I'm like, I'm emotional listening to your story because I feel like, you know, as an adult, I'm thinking about all of these things and can't imagine the impact of all of them. And then I think about, you know, all of this happening to a child and, you know, being 15 years old and the idea that, first of all, that this was kind of a a product of your circumstances, but then also that somehow the appropriate response is a 12-year period of incarceration is just totally beyond my comprehension. Well, well, the lead up to it was, it it was a really frightening process all throughout, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, as soon as I get arrested, my mom takes out her entire life savings, $10,000, and she hires her, uh, she hires her an attorney. And the, and the attorney really doesn't do anything at all for us. So we ended up having to fire him. And so we get appointed a court-appointed attorney. But these court-appointed attorneys, they have hundreds of cases, and they can only spend at most 15 minutes looking over your case and just giving you the best advice that they can. And oftentimes, it's to accept a plea deal. And so we go to court, and at this point, 
I get really, really religious. I, I'd always grown up in a Christian household. And so I started doing Bible studies inside this juvenile detention facility with this idea that, oh, you know, if I'm preaching the word of God, God will save me and he won't end up sending me over to prison. So I'm doing all this work. I'm teaching Bible studies and I get up to the court date. And after we get done with the trial, the judge looks down and he says, Jason, because of the seriousness of your offense, I'm sentencing you to 12 years in prison. And in that moment, all feeling just leaves my body. I, I remember hearing like a faint echo of my mom and my grandma just wailing in the background. And I'm in an orange jumpsuit. I've got waist shackles. My feet are shackled. And they just usher me back into my jail cell. And it doesn't really hit me for a couple of hours. And later on that night, once I had a time to actually process it, I couldn't help but just cry my eyes out. Because to a 15-year-old, 12 years feels like the rest of your life. And so I suddenly felt, oh my gosh, like my life is now over. Yeah. I mean, it's basically as probably your life as long as you can remember it, right? You probably, you kind of start remembering things when you're a couple of years old and like, that's how long you've been alive for. Exactly. And so what from there? Yeah. So, so from there, they shipped me over to an orientation facility. And so what happens is that they shackle you up and they put you into this white van and this white van is totally caged up. And so we take that about six hour drive over to this assessment unit. And as soon as we get off the van, we're ushered into this room where we're fingerprinted. They take our mugshot. And then after that, they put us into a shower room. Now, this shower room is filled with kids between the ages of 10 years old and 20 years old. The guards tell us to strip down naked. They then put de-lysing liquid on our heads um, and then tell us to go into the showers. So there's a guard at one end of the shower room and he flips a switch and all of a sudden I'm just hit by this really, really cold water. So I'm taking the de-lysing liquid and I'm washing my body. But before I get done, and I, I don't know how any of this works. So before I get done, they turn off the water and I still have soap in my eyes that's stinging my eyes, but the guard won't turn back the water on so that way I can finish showering. So with the soap stinging my eyes, I get a towel, I dry myself off. They then shift us over to the barber where they shave our heads completely. And then we go over to medical where they draw our blood, see whether or not we've got HIV, AIDS, or any other type of uh, illnesses. From there, we go over to our, our holding cell. And I've got a bag of all of my belongings. So, you know, a pair of sandals, some sheets for my bed, my pants, my jumpsuit. And I'm suddenly in this room with 30 or 40 other kids. And it's the most intimidating experience of my life. There's one guard and a bunch of really angry, high energy kids just running around. And so I go over to my bunk, I set myself down. And that was the start of my prison journey. Wow. And again, I mean, I kind of come back to you're 15 years old and you're describing this scene with people who are as young as 10. Um, I know I mentioned this to you and when we spoke before, but I spent time working in a juvenile detention center in Toronto. So I'm sort of, you know, able to picture the kids at that age going through that experience. And it's 
just the inhumanity of it and when you think about it as a child. So a few questions. I mean, there are a lot of questions kind of in my mind. Um, What I'm thinking about really is, first of all, did you serve the full 12 years? No, I, I, I was very lucky. So Texas has a law where, you know, if you are under the age of 16 and a half, you could get a long sentence. So there were 14-year-old kids that had 20-year sentences. But depending on your type of crime, there was a minimum length of time that you absolutely had to stay in prison. And so even though I had a 12-year sentence, my minimum length of time was three years. So I was very lucky in that respect. But the reason why I was released early was a really unique circumstance. So from the orientation unit, they send me over to my final resting ground, which is this prison in South Texas. And my mom, you know, she's so heartbroken. I'm her only son. She used to say that even though I'm physically in prison, mentally and emotionally, she's in prison with me. And so despite working 14-hour night shifts, every single weekend, she would make an eight-hour drive from Dallas all the way down to the southern tip of Texas just to see me in prison for two hours and then drive all the way back. And it was really hard on her and my grandma. My mom ended up trading in her car for a minivan. And in that minivan, she folded down all the seats and put down a bed because as she was driving, she would get so tired that she would have to pull over to the side of the road, sleep in the minivan for maybe an hour or two, and then continue the rest of the trip down there. So I'm in prison and my mom is my hero. Like she is doing everything possible to keep me safe and to keep me positive. So every single week, I would get these huge packets of mail. And I used to think that was from my old homeboys or girls I used to date. My mom was sending me math homework, (laughs) just like back in my restaurant days. (laughs) And when she would come to visitation, she would actually test me on uh, on the math homework. She would send me books on geology, religion, business. She would actually talk to my friends in high school and she would photocopy the the biology book as an example and ship all that material in. And her reasoning was she couldn't do anything to keep me physically safe. But what she could do is send me a lot of really engaging material to keep me mentally occupied. And if I was reading this material, perhaps I wouldn't get into trouble. So all I did for the entire three and a half years that I was incarcerated was read every single day. And in 2007, I ended up finding my calling. So while I'm in prison, I set up Bible study programs again. I created a GD program because I noticed a lot of kids, mostly minorities, um, had trouble understanding like very simple concepts like how to read and write and basic math. And so I set up these programs to help them get their GED. And in 2007, the media started to find out that correctional officers were taking these 13 and 14-year-old boys and girls, putting them into isolation cells, and then sexually assaulting them. So it became a national story. And I got to testify in front of the Texas State Senate on criminal justice reform through the help of multiple advocates like Michelle Deitch, Tracy Levins, Will Harrell, we're able to get thousands of kids released from these maximum security programs out to community programs where they would be better served. We got the entire board of directors fired, and we enacted a lot of criminal justice reform efforts within the prison system itself. And because of my work uh, as an inmate, after I was released, they gave me a full ride scholarship. 
to go to University of Texas at Dallas, where I earned uh, an MBA as well as a Master of Science degree in international business. What an incredible story. So how old were you at the point that you were testifying? Uh, I was only 17 years old. And it was the most nerve wracking experience of my life. Because here I was in a jumpsuit (laughs) in a state capitol building, going up to the podium. I've got all the prison officials at my back. I'm talking about the executive director of the entire agency, correctional officers, the warden of the prison. And I'm in front of Senator Whitmire, and he's asking me all these really pointed questions about what's actually going on at the facility. And so at that point, I've really got two choices. I can tell them the truth about what's going on and face, um, uh, you know, retaliation from the prison guards, or I can lie and say that everything's good. Um, So I ended up telling the truth. And the truth was, is that there were a lot of correctional officers that want to do the right thing. But the way that the prison system was set up was the most dangerous form of incarceration. You've got about five or 6,000 kids housed in warehouses And these warehouses are all open bay, so they're not individual cells. So think about like a gymnasium as an example. And you've got these five, 6,000 kids. They're coming from really, really horrific circumstances. There's nothing to do. There's no programming. The officers are really, really corrupt. We're being abused constantly. And so we get into fights and people get hurt and there are drugs in the system. And so I told the senator, if you want to make a real difference in our lives after we get released, you've got to give us a fighting chance. You've got to give us educational programs like college. So at the very least, we can take advantage of the time that we have in here. We have to learn a skill or a trade. So that way, when we get released, we can actually get a job. And uh, and it was just a really, really cool experience. They they listened to the feedback. And um, what I didn't know was they were working behind the scenes to help me get released from prison earlier. That is truly incredible. And the impact that that testimony had, that your courage had to be able to actually share your story. And so then you you get released early. And can you take us back to that day where like the doors open and you get to walk out? Yeah, So so the entire t- time in prison, we always used to talk about, I can't wait to get out into the free world. And the free world is prison slang for life outside of prison. So we would say stuff like, man, when I get out into the free world, the first thing I'm going to go get is McDonald's. You know, stuff like that, right? So sure enough, my day comes. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. That's when I'm supposed to get released. Well, my caseworker forgot that that was my release day. So she comes in three hours late. So I'm inside of the prison staring at the clock. And those three hours feel like an eternity. On the other side, my mom is in the parking lot staring at the prison gates and wondering, oh, my God, did something happen to my son? So finally, the caseworker comes in. She releases me. First place we go to is Wendy's. And then after that, we take the long drive back to, to my house. And when we get in front of my house, my mom says, wait in the car. She runs into the house. And then she comes back out and says, all right, you can go ahead and come in. And when I walked into the house, what she had done is she had lit candles throughout the entire house. She made my bed the way that I used to have it before I went to prison. And it was just such a surreal feeling. Like I was home. 
And when I laid in that bed for the first time after three and a half years, it felt like I was laying on clouds. You know, the, the prison mattresses are like an inch thick. You're basically laying on steel for three and a half years. And this sense of like peace just floated over my body. I, I went to I went to sleep um, the most relieved than I'd, I'd felt in the past three and a half years. I mean, it, it was just totally surreal. Um, but the next morning when I woke up is when the challenges started to come up. <laughs> You know, three and a half years doesn't feel like a long time for those of us who have never been incarcerated, but for a person that's that's been locked up and is getting back out into society, the world feels like it moves so fast, like so many things have changed. I went to prison when we had flip phones. I came out to the iPhone 2. I had no idea what a smartphone was. When I was driving in the car, I felt sick to my stomach because when you're in prison, you're constantly stagnant. Nothing moves around you. And when I was on the highway, I felt so frightened because everything felt like it was moving way too quickly. Even the things that, you know, in society, you know, you, you, you cross the street, you go into a grocery store, you go have dinner at a restaurant. It felt so foreign to me. Going into a grocery store, I saw all these different brands of cereal, and it was too overwhelming. Crossing the street, I didn't know what to do. I had to look at other people for social cues on when to go. Eating in a restaurant, I always had to have my back against the wall because I needed to see everything that was in front of me. And I always made sure that anytime I went into a building, that I knew where all the exits were. It was just a really frightening experience, just those first couple of days reintegrating back into society. And then after those first couple of days, you know, what comes next from there? Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I was in the juvenile system, so I went to juvenile parole and juvenile parole is actually quite good. Uh, the juvenile parole officer, they actually care. They came over to the house. Of course, I've got a curfew. I can't leave after, you know, 7 p.m., uh, but they help you get resources in order to go to school or find a job. When it came to a job, I found that my criminal history, even as a juvenile, kept coming up. And so it felt so disheartening to go to job interview after job interview and basically just be rejected constantly. I did end up being able to access a Pell Grant to go to college, but even that was an overwhelming sensation. Um, I remember going into the college, and I'm on the second floor, and I see all these kids just walking around, and it, it, it feels, I, I felt like an alien. Right. Like, like I, I felt like I, I had just come in from another world. And when I would go to these classes, I would see all these students sit in the very back row and they're all on Facebook. And I'm in the very front row because to me, this was an opportunity that I was fighting for for years. Mm -hmm. And here I here I am with an opportunity to actually learn and to look at the other students around me. I, I was just I, I was baffled that nobody seemed to like really care about education. <laughs> um, I remember, um, you know, going from school and driving for the first time back home. And, you know, I'm in my mom's minivan. I've got the windows down, the music blaring. And all I can do is just, just weep because this felt like freedom. I could go wherever I wanted to. Like it, it was such an extraordinary feeling that I hadn't had for years. 
And so I just came out into a world with such an appreciation for just the little things in life that most people never even think of. Mm-hmm. Because of some really great mentors and friends around me, I was able to finally land myself a job in a restaurant. One of my mentors taught me how to invest in the stock market. This is back in 2008 after the Great Recession. And so I took out private student loans. I, by the way, don't recommend this to anybody, but I didn't know what to do. So I took out private student loans and I invested that money into the stock market. And it turned out to be a really great investment. I ended up making like triple what my principal was. I paid back all my student loans and I used that money to buy a house. And then I started a real estate company and it just kept going up and up from there. So... One thing I would just love to know is in that period of time, so like you get to university and you have this very recent experience from your past, how did you feel about being able to engage with, you know, your peers? Did you feel like you could share openly about your story? Can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I I came out at the age of 19. And so that was the age where everybody was like coming out of high school and still figuring things out. And so the reintroduction back in the society wasn't as difficult for me because I was going to college, I was doing really well. And so, you know, over time, after I started to uh, get over some of the old habits that kept me really safe in prison, uh, that didn't keep me safe outside of prison, that actually led to failure. After I got over that, um, it, it was actually pretty easy to just basically live the college life, just like every other student. But that criminal record just kept coming up years and years and years after I was released. And so I had graduated with a double master's, you know, kept applying for jobs, uh, kept being rejected, um, ultimately found a mentor that helped me get into management consulting. And by this time, I had uh, transitioned from juvenile parole over to adult parole. And that was a very stark difference. So in juvenile parole, it was very much like, let's help you, let's help you apply for jobs, let's help you apply for education. In adult parole, this is more of, hey, you need to do X, Y, Z, and we're not going to really give you a whole lot of guidance and support in order to help get those things that you need. So as an example, I was required to go over to the parole office on a monthly basis, um, but they only operated from eight to five. And so I'd have to lose, uh, I would have to leave my job in order to go to parole And oftentimes that would be like a three hour round trip. So it was really odd to my job that I had to essentially take a day off every single month. And they they were wondering like, what's going on? Also in management consulting, I was required to fly out of state. And so uh, from time to time, you know, whenever a project would come up, I would tell my parole officer, you know, 60, 90 days ahead of time saying, hey, I'm about to go out of state because they, they required me to have paperwork. Well, the parole officer wouldn't give me the paperwork. Right. Because essentially, you know, they have so many people on their caseload that they can't handle all the inbound traffic. Um, so they just don't end up doing the paperwork to, to allow you to go. Well, it's my job. So I went anyways. And when the parole officer found out, uh, they basically said, if you keep doing this, we're going to end up sending you back to prison for nine years, which was the remainder of my parole. Uh, so I had to quit my job as um, as a management consultant just so that way I wouldn't go back into prison. Around that time, I decided to start up a business. And so I started up Bite Size Moments, which was a, a tech company at the time. I invested everything that I had into it. And when I went up for angel investments in Texas, once again, the criminal record came up and they saw that I had a felony on my record. And I wouldn't get any money. So long story short, I ended up in California, homeless, living in my car and having to shut down the company. 
And, um, you know, it, it was one of the, the lowest points of my reentry journey. But after that, I decided to take another risk and work for another nonprofit. So, you know, it, it's just been challenge after challenge, but with good people along the way, helping me, uh, helping, helping me get to where I need to go. What is it? Your mindset is inspirational. And the fact that like you keep having these setbacks and you keep just getting up and going on and doing the next thing. What was happening there in those moments that you kind of, you know, you, you have this setback and then you just get back up and keep doing it again? Well, I mean, you kind of have to, right? Like the, the other choice is to be stagnant and die. Yeah. So, you know, I, I really attribute a lot of a lot of the success that I've had in my life to my mom. Because when I was in prison, she kept enforcing this positive thinking that you're a good person. Don't feed into negativity around you. You have a future. And that future is dependent on the choices that you make today. And so she never let me give up. And because of her, I just kept every single time I get got knocked down, I would just keep looking at the next opportunity, next opportunity. Uh, I, I became a bulldog. So anytime that somebody would say no, I would find another way to say, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? Until I finally got into that position or I finally get to that next, that next stage in life. Um, but the thing that I'm proudest of is, you know, after uh, about 10 years of being released, I ended up meeting uh, Matt Mosheri, Jason Green, and Andy Bromberg, uh, who ended up becoming uh, board members for a new organization that I was setting up called Free World. And this new organization was really, uh, the, the theory of change for this new organization was all about economics. Because we knew that getting out of prison, if you can't find a job, if you can't take care of yourself and your family, that you would end up out of desperation going back to your old lifestyle. Because selling drugs, at least you can take care of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. But if you can't even get a job at McDonald's, you have nothing to lose. You have, you, you have no pathway forward. So what we found is that in the trucking industry, there are over 1.1 million new drivers needed just to keep up with current economic demand. And because of this massive shortage, they would hire anybody regardless of the criminal history. And so we created a really scalable online program that on one side really addressed all the challenges that people face whenever they reenter society. But at the same time, we can get somebody into a career within just 45 days and they can earn anywhere between 50 to $80,000 within their first year. And over the past couple of years that we've been deploying this program, it's been working. We've now served hundreds of students all across the nation, 100% employment rate. Three of our graduates have even started their own trucking companies that are now hiring our new graduates coming out of school. And less than 1% of our students have gone back into prison. That is so awesome. And for anyone who's been listening to the podcast, you know that recidivism rates are high. And so 1% is absolutely incredible. What a great program. Yeah. I mean, in, in America, one in three Americans have a criminal record. And 76% of people that go to prison end up returning to prison within five years. 89% of those who end up going back to prison are unemployed when they get arrested. Mm -hmm. So the, the data is clear. It's not about just getting a job. 
It's about getting a living wage job Mm -hmm. where you have enough money to actually pay for things, to pay for your fees and fines and restitution, uh, your old child support debts, you know, to pay for housing, a car. Like if you can transition into a stable portion of your life where you have the basic necessities taken care of, it's incredible to see how people end up changing their mindset from I'm getting out of prison, I'm never going to get a job, everybody's going to reject me, I'm a leper in society, to, hey, I actually have pride in what I do, and I'm able to take care of my kids for the first time. And you know what? I actually might have a future past this. So that's what's really inspiring for us, and it's Mm -hmm. why I do the work that I do today. Yeah. And it's really exciting, both the kind of training component and the placement component that you've been able to support people and actually really getting those living wage jobs that actually can be a career. That's right. That's right. Okay. So one question that I kind of ask everyone is going back to you know Jason being released from prison, I feel like I I think about that that kind of stigma and you you come out and this criminal record is hanging over your head and I think about it as kind of like one of those hello my name is name tags and instead of it saying your name or anything about you that you would want people to know it's like hey I you know spent 3 years in prison and for robbery if you could go back to that person you were on that day, tear off the name tag and instead write on it what you wanted people to see in you about who you are, what would it say? Well, you know, it it, it depends on what point in time. It, it, if it was at the point of incarceration, um, I, I was in a really bad place in my life. I actually needed to go to prison. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just, I was so angry at the world. I felt so alone. That guy was a pretty bad guy. When I got released from prison, I had a hope for the future. And my mindset had shifted because for the first time in a long time, I had discovered how powerful a mother's love was. And so I wanted to do better in life. And so what I wish people would have known about me back then, after I'd gotten released from prison, was that, first of all, I'm a young kid that wants to do good in the world. I want what everybody else wants in life, right? I want meaning, purpose. Uh, I want to discover the world. I want to discover what my gifts and passions are. Um, I want to, you know, be able to to spend time with family um, and just be a positive member of society. I I don't think that anybody is born into this world inherently evil. I think that a lot of that is a byproduct of our environments. Mm -hmm. But when we shove people into a box and don't really look at the totality of what makes up this human being, we sh- shut off all potential, all, all potential for the future, and that's why in our program, you know, we love the fact that we can get people into the trucking industry because we're able to bypass a lot of the challenges that people are coming out where they can get a job, they can take care of their kids, they can take care of their families, and so they're reimagining new futures for themselves. Yeah, I mean, thank you for that answer. And something that you said early on 
kind of struck a chord because you said, you know, the me that was incarcerated needed to go to prison. And you're not the only person that said that to me. And I think that sometimes there is sort of that need for a wake up call that's beyond anything else that can happen. And simultaneously, that the system that we currently have isn't set up to actually support people going into the system to succeed and to really support that kind of journey to you got there, but not everybody does. And so there's, I mean, this is a whole other podcast, but, you know, I'm thinking about from your perspective, what do we need to do to make prisons, someone said success factories, right? Like how do we make prisons places where people go and there's almost a guarantee or a really good chance that you are coming out having had that opportunity to reflect, to learn, to grow, and to be ready to kind of move into that next chapter of your life? I, I personally think that like the biggest change that we can make is to change the financial incentives. So today prisons get paid based on heads and beds. Mm-hmm. What if prisons got paid based on the number of people that they successfully got out of prison, specifically in parole and probation? Like what if those departments were funded based on how much success they had rather than being uh, pay based on the fail- failures that they have. If we change that financial incentive, I think that that changes uh, a lot of the thinking that goes into this. Because today it's all about lock them up, throw away the key. Yeah. And once they get released, you've got a criminal record. You know, you made this mistake ten years ago when you were fifteen years old as a, in a kid, and now for the rest of your life, you're only going to be known for the worst thing that you've ever done. So let's first of all change the the financial incentives. Um, the way. Now, that, that is a really long pathway to, to coming to fruition. The way that we look at it over the next 100 years is, number one, in the short term, we're building out the infrastructure to be able to serve 100,000 graduates on a yearly basis. I mean, our program's online. It's extraordinarily quick. We pay students $2,000 to go to school um, and to get their commercial driver's license. Today, we're in trucking. In the future, we're going to be in welding, construction, and a bunch of other industries. All the students who go through our program sign a pay-it-forward contract, where if they're making at least $50,000 a year, they pay pay it forward a portion of their income to help the next couple of students go through our program. And even though our pay-it-forward program is pretty young, our students have already paid for 20 additional students going through the program. So, so it is a really unique way to create a sustainable program rather than just rely on philanthropy forever. And the idea is that if we can attack mass recidivism first by focusing on these high-wage careers, we can then springboard that into actual policy reform later down the line. Another aspect of our program is really focused on wealth management. And so we really focus on increasing credit scores and making sure that you save, budget, and invest, that we take away collections and old debt off your record with the idea of if we can take these families and shift them out of poverty, then this uh, significantly reduces the likelihood of their kids ending up back in the prison system itself. So over the next hundred years, we're essentially slowing the number of people going back into the prison system, making sure that future generations don't end up in the prison system, and leveraging our scale and outcomes to actually make uh, criminal justice policy reform. Amazing. So here's a question. For anyone who may be listening who wants to get in 
involved, either who wants to support what you're doing and find out more or who actually wants to, you know, become a trainee or has a family member who wants to become a trainee. Where do they find you? How can people support you? Tell us about that. Yeah. So, so if you're interested in learning more about our program, you can go to www.joinfreeworld.com and you can contact us on our website. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you. This was a ton of fun. Thanks so much, Zoe. Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us on our mission to shift hearts and minds and the conversation around criminality and incarceration. If you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, there are a couple of things you can do to support the show. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast, where you can access more content like this. One final reminder that this is the last episode of season one. We are so excited for what we have in store for season two. We'll see you soon.